Hello everyone, it's December 22nd, 2020. So at the 11th hour, Astra got in a mostly successful launch before the end of the year and Chang'e has safely landed with its collection of youthful moon rocks. It's nice to close out the year with some positive space news. And on that positive note, liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 290 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And no Dennis this and week. And no Dennis. <laughs> yep. And there will be no us next week at all. So we're taking that week off. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as is tradition. Yeah. It, it's just our tradition. Well, it's, I think it's most people's tradition because it's, right. you know, you have the holidays coming up. But so Christmas came a little bit, I guess, a little bit early for me because uh, uh, you know that season five of The Expanse premiered a couple of days ago. Oh, no, I didn't know that. So you have to get on that. So the first three episodes are out then we have to wait one week for each successive episode but yeah um so far it's really good i just wanted to mention that for anyone out there who might be into the expanse which if you are i imagine you already know but in case you forgot are, are you yeah. watching the mandalorian because they just had their season two finale so also the mandalorian yeah i've been watching that and without spoilers i have to say i'm a little bit well a little bit surprised maybe even confused as to what's going on but you know i don't follow star wars like religiously so maybe i'm getting something mixed up or am i supposed to oh. be confused here no 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 you're not supposed to be confused this this makes total sense in the in the world of uh of star wars like obviously what we're seeing is what we're seeing link up with with other stories in the in the star wars universe um like i, I don't think it's a spoiler because it was broadly publicized that ahsoka tano it, uh made an appearance um which is, is really interesting because ahsoka up until now has not been part of the main canon she's been i think i think the alternate canon that they have is called like star wars universes i could be right, something like that but like um rebels and the clone wars and a lot of the books are maintained as a form of canon but it's an alternate it's not an alternate timeline, but it's like an alternate canon that's not quite the movie canon. Um, and so because Mandalorian is in the movie canon, I believe, Ahsoka Tano now gets sucked into, uh, into the full canon. So she actually exists there. So we're seeing, uh, other bits of the main canon, um, have some, tie-ins with the Mandalorian that tell us about events that we weren't privy to before. So yeah, there there is new things happening here, but nothing that disrupts uh the the rest of the main canon we always talk about nerdy stuff that felt very nerdy <laughs> even to yeah me a bit. yeah 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 star wars <laughs> star wars history is is definitely uh kind of niche so that's our tv talk so it's good we, 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 <laughs> I, feel, I feel like we haven't talked about sci-fi at the top of the show in a while so yeah freaking dennis man he uh he pulls us nerds back into reality and yeah. sometimes we just need to be let off the leash Astra makes it to space. How cool is that? Finally, they didn't quite stay, but they made it. <laughs> yeah, they they got within pushing distance. You know, if it was yeah. KSP, you'd uh, you'd go on EVA and use your jetpack to get that last ounce of speed out. Well, so this brings up a good preliminary question, which is, uh, what happened to that upper stage? So I guess yeah. we should first talk about what happened with you know the launch. This was a successful launch and a successful staging, uh, but the second stage itself actually shut down a little bit early and according to Chris Kemp the founder and CEO the second stage reached a velocity of 7.2 kilometers per second but they needed 7.68 
which, uh, yeah, so about, you know, half a kilometer difference there. So close. And so that has me wondering how long before that re-enters or has it already? Because I don't oh, know it, the decay it already, rate of no, something. No, no, no. Okay. It, we're not talking about decay. I think we're talking about coming straight back into the atmosphere. Well, you're right. I mean, it's half a kilometer. That's a big, like, yeah, because I was kind of thinking at first, like, it might be up for a while. But no, no, you're right. Yeah, it's half a kilometer out of, yeah, okay. Uh, my, so Micah, that's a lot of missing delta V. Yeah, my, uh, half a kilometer per second. It's We have to be clear this is speed. Oh, yes, and yes. So, um, and so Mike in the chat actually just uh, handed us a tweet from Jonathan Jonathan McDowell, um, and he says, based on the data from Astra, uh, I estimate rocket 3.2 reached something like a negative 1100 by 390 kilometer, 98.1 mm-hmm. degree orbit and reentered over the Pacific about 21 minutes after launch, maybe as far south as the equator near Jarvis Island. So yeah, this, this is parabolic. This isn't decay as much as it is. Uh, just, just straight falling. Right. Especially with such a, you know, I mean, obviously you, you get into that fairly low altitude. And so if you're not in a good orbit, then you're coming right back down because it's going to interface with the atmosphere and then it's just straight back down again. So that makes total sense. Um, yeah, I mean, a half a kilometer per second delta V is a big chunk of it. Yeah. So it didn't quite make it, but, uh, still, um, it was just due to a somewhat sooner than anticipated shutdown of the engines. And this is because there was not enough fuel, or rather, apparently there might have been, uh, but they need to optimize their fuel mixture ratio or, you know, the fuel to oxidizer ratio. Again, I, this just kind of brings up some questions, which first of all, they, they say that the upper stage shut down 12 to 15 seconds early um i'm just curious which is it because they have to know they they probably know but that doesn't mean that we know i guess somebody else is inferring this and there was no official statement yeah it it might be inference um it also might just be you need to do data analysis before you can get up to your final precision and so they might have like preliminary data i don't know i guess if the official statement was that they're you know half a kilometer short then you could maybe do the math there and say oh that means it must have cut off you know 12 to 15 15 seconds early and so yeah it's it's funny to me every single time we come across a range you're mm-hmm. always like why is this a range why don't we have an exact number mm-hmm. <laughs> see my first instinct is like of course there's a range because there's going to be a little you know slop there but you usually say and you're correct that well no they you know this is very precise stuff they know exactly when the engine's cut off and so this confuses me when you know i see this range here because i'm like well there's an exact number that you know, somebody knows, but I guess, as you said, they're just not, you know, saying what it is. And Sam in the chat has a a very, very good observation. They might know exactly when, when the cutoff happened, but the question is, what do you compare that to? Um, when should it have cut out? And Sam in the chat says for this early of a launch, there might've been error bars in their Mm -hmm. idea of what an ideal launch is. Um, and I think that's actually really astute because, in that case, they could say, yes, we know that it shut down exactly 15, uh, 12 to 15 seconds early. We just don't know what what it was early of, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's another possibility, I, I too. That, I think that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, they uh, uh, Chris Kemp, I think, uh, said that they were going to be thrilled with just getting all the way through the first stage uh, burn. And so, you know, it sounds like they've, you know, kind of worked through the kinks on their first stage. Now they can get to the point where they're, you know, confident in their engine, but, you know, they need to do some dialing in and, and that's okay. You know, it's, it's okay to, to not make it all the way to orbit. You, you still have, 
you know, a lot of success, just a successful return on this flight, you know? So the fine tuning of the RP1 and LOX ratios there, uh, that was another somewhat surprising bit to me because I yeah. figured they would already have that. Yeah. Sto stoichiometry, you can do this on paper. So there, there's some subtlety here that, you know, relates to performance, uh, an optimal mixture stoichiometrically speaking is, is, you know, I don't think it's ever the exact ratio that's used, you know, in practice. I think it's always, you always end up flying a little, uh, a little off one way or the other. Um, I, th I think usually it's going to be fuel rich because the fuel has a higher molecular weight and it has less of a propensity to burn your engine. Um, so I, I think they're probably just burning a little too fuel rich or maybe not fuel rich enough. Uh, you know, who knows? I don't know what the ratios usually are for something like RP1. I know that for, yeah. you know, a Hydrolox engine, it tends to be, you know, hydrogen rich, uh, for several reasons. Um, and that makes sense. But for, you know, something like, you know, kerosene, I actually never really looked into it because I always figured it was, you know, pretty close to a one to one ratio. But, you know, just as you said, it might be, you know, like better to burn a little bit more of the, the actual rocket fuel, which can also, depending on the weights of these things, I, I mean, it could be, that you get obviously a little bit more thrust from a higher density, but obviously it's not as efficient. So, you know, you have to kind of take that into consideration. So it's like, you know, do you want more thrust or do you want more efficiency? And that's kind of how all this comes into play. Yeah. A lot of subtlety. And so, uh, spaceflightnews.com uh, says that rocket 3.3 is about, uh, 75% complete and they're going to be launching it in a few months. And Kemp says that that'll happen as soon as they can get back up to Kodiak. This launch, by the way, you know, almost didn't happen. They had um, somebody test positive uh, for COVID-19, uh, you know, like a week before launch. Um, and so they basically have to scrap the whole team and, and send new folks up. All right. Sorry. Uh, I've been made aware that I just said spaceflight news. I meant spacenews.com. So yeah, uh, that's, that's rocket 3.2. 3.3 should be the one that, that makes it to orbit. And I, I don't think that they have a payload scheduled for 3.3, do they? Oh, no. They, uh, actually the space news article actually does say that, yeah, they're expected to, uh, have a payload on, on 3.3. All right. Cool. Let's, uh, let's translate now on over to Chang of five. Uh, so the sample has been recovered. So the capsule returned on the 16th and this is after 23 days. It performed a skip reentry just over the Arabian Sea. And I guess this was just a shed velocity. Yeah. I, I looked into it last when we talked last, um, when you were talking about it, I got, I got the impression, and I'm pretty sure I stated this impression on the show, and, and nobody correct me, so that's uh, crazy. <laughs> first first time that's happened. But um, I, I got the impression that that it was like a double dip reentry, um, where like you enter the atmosphere and slow down and and lower your apoapsis, exit the atmosphere, go all the way around the planet and come back in, which. Uh, which is kind of crazy. Like we, we generally don't see that happening, but no, this is, this is a, a ballistic skip. So they re-enter the atmosphere and they come in, uh, in such a way that they shed a huge amount of velocity. Um, but they push their apoapsis in front of them. Um, so they actually rise back up and then fall back in. And it's all, they don't exit the atmosphere depending on how, how you define the, the top of the atmosphere, but they, their altitude kind of goes down and then up and then back down, which is, uh, I think most famously, uh, the reentry profile used by Apollo. And it's, it's a 
fairly common reentry, especially um, when you're coming in from high altitudes like this. Not that we very often see things coming in at, at these kind of speeds. But yeah, it's, it's, it's just a little skip as you're coming down. Well, your original idea was actually what I was thinking too. So that's okay. why at least I didn't okay. correct you because I was thinking that that's how it you know worked. But yeah, so this is more of just you know a little skip. So yeah, it skipped over the Arabian Sea, kept on going, and then it touched down in Sizawang Banner, which is uh, somewhere in the Inner Mongolia region, um, autonomous zone. I'm not sure, but yeah, that region of China. And uh, that was, what is that? About a half hour later mm -hmm. um, or a little under. Yeah, like 25 minutes. About. That's such a long descent. When has it ever taken that long to get through the atmosphere? It, it must be because they're counting from the beginning of the skip all the way down to the ground. I, I guess doing the skip and then maybe they have a long descent on parachutes. I'm I'm not sure, but that, that just seems long to me. I don't know. That seems about right. 25 minutes, I guess. I mean, it's obviously not orbital velocity, but it's, mm -hmm. you know, starts off pretty close. I mean, I guess that seems about right, but yeah, it has to come down on parachutes. So that can take a while, I guess. So the first thing that happens is um, before that reentry, the capsule has to separate from the orbiter. Um, so that's the part that came back with it that, you know, brought the capsule back actually. And what's interesting about that is that that apparently is now going into, uh, the earth sun L1 point, cool um, Lagrange point. Yeah. So that's what they're going to do with it. I think that's a really cool, you know, reappropriation of something that you already have on orbit. So why not stick it there? Although it does seem a little bit strange to me. Yeah. It's the opposite direction, isn't it? Yeah. It's the opposite direction. So no, 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 no. Hang on. What fate, what's the phase of the moon right now? It, it's actually, it is actually in the correct direction. Oh, I guess. Yeah. When you consider yeah. that, that actually makes total sense. Yeah. Let's see. Today's moon phase is waxing crescent. So it's roughly in the right direction. Okay. You know, it's weird because in my head, you know, like mm -hmm. just like an idiot, I'm thinking, oh, the moon has to be further <laughs> away from, you know. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Because uh, we're we're thinking about the Earth-Moon Lagrange system. Yeah. The Earth-Sun. So, yeah. So right now the moon is uh, is waxing. So that means that it's headed away from um, the the L1, uh, the, the Earth Sun L1 point. Um, it, it's swinging around and it's heading towards the Earth's dark side, the Earth's night side. Mm -hmm. um, so, it, you know, it's not a perfect alignment, but that's okay. When we're talking about orbits this long, it doesn't take that much delta V to, to make these changes. And uh, what, what's really interesting is uh, Sam in the chat points out that Chang'e 2 actually went to L2, um, which I think uh, suggests that the moon was uh, 180 degrees opposed to where it is now mm -hmm, when yeah. uh, when Chang'e 2 uh, headed home. Um, so Chang'e 2 went to L2 and loitered there for a little bit. Um, the China Space Agency said that it was to allow them to test um, their their deep space communication, their, their tracking and communication uh, hardware. And then um, Chang'e 2 then actually departed the L2's uh, point and did a flyby of an asteroid, uh, a near-Earth object, uh, 4179 Tuatatis. And so what is Chang'e 5 going to do? It's going to be pretty cool because they have... Um, they have some reasonable cameras, so they, they may end up doing some Earth photography um, at L1, uh, which is, by the way, where the Discover satellite is. And, and Discover is just a, a 
fantastic source of uh, full illumination earth photographs. Mm. It's really fantastic. So they they may get some uh, some nice photos while they're out there, but but then they could go anywhere near Earth's orbit, assuming that they have enough fuel and, and we don't know how much fuel they have. So uh, they could go do another another neo flyby which would be pretty cool so now i guess uh, we can talk about chang'e 6 because uh, chang'e 6 was actually the backup for chang'e 5 should something have gone wrong but it didn't so now they can use this this mission which they can still move forward with it but they don't have to do this same sample return so apparently this one is going to be sent to the south pole there's two locations it says one is the south pole and then the other one is the south pole aitken basin so i guess that these are to I guess one's like the geographic South Pole, and then the other one is in that region in a specific basin. Um, I'm not too familiar with the topography here, so I don't know where that is. I, I think it's it's more like a refining. Like we could go to Asia, or you know, we could even go to Thailand. You know, like like mm-hmm. that kind of. Okay. Maybe more specifically the Aitken Basin, uh, but I don't know quite, you know, I, I don't know a lot about what that is. But obviously, you know, some place around the South Pole of the moon. I don't know. It's weird. I mean, like the Aitken Basin is, is gigantic. I just pulled photos up of it to make sure um, I'm thinking correctly. And it's it's basically the entire South Pole region. So I don't know why it that article is just phrased weird. I don't know why they did that. Yeah, apparently it's just, yeah, like it's the whole South Pole. I'm looking at a little topographic map. Yeah, it's just the South Pole. It's kind of like the South Arctic Circle, I guess, if it had one, which I don't <laughs> think that's how it works. But yeah, it, it's just about as big as that. So that uh, Chang'e 6 mission will be sometime in 2023 through 2024. Um, and that will include contributions from CNES, the French Space Agency. It's pretty cool. And then also Chang'e 7, I guess you put this in, I didn't even know about yeah. this. Chang'e 7 is also planned for the South Pole in 2024. So they're just doing all kinds of stuff, huh? <laughs> well, and, and what's crazy is if... Six is flying 2023 to 2024, and Chang'e 7 is currently planned to fly in 2024, and they're targeting the same region. Does that mean they're going to land two landers on the South Pole? That, I mean, that would ma- certainly make sense. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, lots of, lots of things to do there, but I, I don't know. I, I think Chang'e 7 may be altered or delayed or who who knows certainly a possibility at least yep so this successful mission um i guess this gives china the confidence to me you know build on that and um the future ambitions they have now might be something like a mission to a near-earth asteroid or possibly a mars sample mission which is far more ambitious um or a crewed lunar mission which i believe they do have planned for was it sometime in the 2030s i believe um that actually is their goal at the moment yeah i mean i'd say that this is a fairly significant step they brought something back a sample from the surface of the moon which has not been done since i guess the apollo era or no. did the soviets do it after yeah the, yeah they're uh, okay. one of the lunar missions i guess just to wrap up yes successful mission for china and uh can't wait to learn you know what there is to learn about those samples collected uh, hopefully we'll get some information on that because i think that's really interesting since this is the oldest regolith ever collected right the, the youngest the youngest, or the youngest rather sorry and, and what's really cool is that sample is going to Beijing um, and it sounds like they've either built an entirely new lab or have uh, ref- you know like rebuilt uh, an existing lab um, because you know storage of lunar material is not an easy thing you know there's a lot of a lot of things you need to do to keep it pristine and to keep it well cataloged and to be able to um, break it up and distribute uh, mm. the samples to, to scientists. But this sample now goes and, and lives in Beijing in this, in this nice new lunar sample lab. 
So this week, uh, since I guess no Dennis, why not just do two short and sweet? <laughs> um, it's our holiday special. It's Christmas. Yeah, it's our excuse to be lazy. So what is that first short and sweet? All right. Project Kuiper reaches a milestone. Amazon's satellite internet subsidiary, Kuiper Systems, has taken an important step towards its goal. Uh, the company has revealed its low-cost customer ground terminal. Normally, these types of phased array KA-band antennas require a larger distance uh, between their receiving and transmitting elements in order to cover the wide frequency range. The Kuiper terminal instead layers small antenna elements over each other. This allows for a terminal that's only 12 inches in diameter, making it three times smaller than legacy systems and reducing cost and complexity for future customers. Next up, CSA, the Canadian Space Agency, is sending two astronauts to the moon. The Artemis II mission, scheduled for 2023, will include one Canadian and then another four in unspecified future Artemis mission. This will make Canada the second country to put humans in orbit around the moon. The Artemis II mission, like Apollo 8, will send astronauts to lunar orbit, then return them to Earth. However, this mission will use a hybrid-free return trajectory, where the Orion circles Earth twice before its translunar injection. Another superlative for this mission will be a record for furthest human travel beyond the far side of the moon. So I forget who currently holds the record, but that guy's going to get ousted. Yeah, Apollo 13 actually holds holds the, the record at uh, 400,171 kilometers. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and corrections. So we have uh, a little, I guess, a little call for assistance from one of our listeners. So I guess the question is, can anyone help? And I guess <laughs> I'll let you explain what the help is, because this is a little bit beyond me. But yeah, it has to do with the AGC, the Apollo Guidance Computer, and somebody who's trying to reconstruct, I guess, yeah. the code from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So th this is this is so cool. This comes from uh, Mike Stewart, um, who recently started... Uh, dropping into our live streams, which makes me incredibly happy. Um, but Mike uh, has been deeply involved with uh, AGC, uh, I guess, archival efforts. Uh, and right now he's working on reconstructing the Apollo 10 software. And so what's interesting is um, we don't know exactly what software has been flown on all the Apollo flights. Um, it, which seems crazy, right? Um, the thing that you have to keep in mind is that the Apollo software was continually evolving, uh, through the whole program. And so right now, uh, like I said, he's working on Apollo 10 and specifically he's asking for help, uh, with one particular revision. Um, and this would be Comanche 45. So the, the previous version was Comanche 44. And as far as we know, we have that completely reconstructed. Interestingly enough, there is a complete listing of the code, um, but it's not been made public. So uh, what we have publicly available right now is sort of a, um, a retro What's it called? A, 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 a reverse engineered version, which which appears to be complete. But right now they're trying to reconstruct Comanche 45. And there's only one difference between the two, uh, the two versions, the two revisions. Um, and it's there, there was a bug that prevented P thir program 30 from 
successfully handing off its calculated delta v magnitudes to p40 and so they made this one change they added three instructions but we can't figure out for the life of us what they are and i, I say we uh meaning humanity because i'm definitely not part uh of this uh of this effort at the moment and so i'll link to the github issue um and the issue is applied to the virtual agc repo which is really darn cool and if you have haven't checked it out you need to go do that but they're they're trying to find where these instructions were added and what's really cool is they know uh, that they were added I believe to bank 16 it could be bank 17 but I believe they're added to bank 16 um, and they're not added like we know where they are and we know what they do and we're pretty sure that it's three instructions but they're not just um, like direct insertions it's not like they're just okay uh we're gonna split these two lines apart and insert three new lines of code because if you do that change it breaks the checksums uh on the code um i, I think it's after you go compile it the compiled code uh doesn't uh match the the checksums that we know um and so because the checksums are run on the compiled code, I believe, um, it becomes really difficult because it's almost like um, working with encryption, right? Uh, you can't just work your way back. Actually, I, I mean, uh, checksums often uh, run off of literal cryptographic uh, algorithms. Well, so I'm a bit confused because wouldn't making any changes always change the checksum because yes. any change to the code will always – so, I mean, you're going to have a change in the checksum no matter what you do to the code, like whether you're in, you know, inserting new code or right. you know, taking something out or making any change. So we know what the C45 checksums are. It's trying to mm -hmm. get the code that we have to match those. So basically you have the checksum for the code that has already been compiled and you're just trying to create code that will match that checksum once you compile it, right? Do I have that right? Uh, yeah, I believe that's correct. So we don't have the compiled code. Okay. Yeah. So so we have the checksums from it, but not the not the actual code itself. I, I could be wrong. Uh, Mike's in the chat and he'll, he'll let me know in a hot second if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yeah, we, we know that three, uh, three instructions were added. We know what bank they were added to, but we can't figure out exactly what they look like. Um, so there is an issue on GitHub that describes the background of this issue. Mike has said that if anybody wants to help, he is more than happy to get you up and running um, with the uh, a virtual version of the interpreter, I believe, um, but get you up and running with uh, you know the repo on your computer and actually able to make changes to this code and poke around and see if we can find it. Uh, it's not going to be found just with uh, brute force. Uh, it's going to take a little bit of knowledge. Um, and Mike acknowledges that AGC interpretive code is very weird, um, but still, this is a puzzle that could be solved. Um, so if you're interested, um, get in touch. Um, GitHub is probably the best place to do that. Um, I think if you just just go make a comment on this issue, which will be linked uh, in the show notes. That would be a great way to get in touch. I don't want to make any promises, but what I would really like to do is do a live stream this week. Uh, and Mike has said that he's uh, willing to do this with me, where Mike and I can get on a call and we can live stream 
the process that it takes to get my computer up and running with this repo. Um, and maybe we can poke around a little bit and talk about how this works and we can show um, how to actually compile the code and how to check, do the checksums and maybe give some uh, basic architecture understanding here. But I, I would really like to do that because that would make it so much easier for the next person to come along and, and pick this up because they can literally watch a live stream of somebody setting this up on their computer. A schmuck me getting set up and an expert Mike uh, explaining uh, what's going on and, and why we're doing things. And I'm assuming I'm going to run into some roadblocks that we'll have to troubleshoot and maybe that will make things a little easier for folks down the road. Um, and, and so that I would love to be able to do that this week. I don't know when I'll be able to carve out time because uh, I'm doing a lot of home renos. I've got home renos scheduled for this week, but keep an eye out on Twitter. That's where that'll go up. Um, and even whether or not I do that, go check out GitHub. Even if you're not interested in contributing, um, this is absolutely fascinating um, to Apollo nerds and programming nerds alike. All right. So this week in Spaceflight History, uh, we got winners and they all get full credit. So we have Anderson DeNova, Ben Howard, the Greek, Kyle Foster, Law Loving, and Kristen Lowe. So the clue was uh, 11 years in five kilometers, and that was in 2003, uh, this week, 2003. Okay. So this week in Spaceflight History is the 25th of December, 2003. It was Beagle 2 landing on Mars. So Beagle 2 was launched in June of 2003 alongside Mars Express. And uh, I think Mars Express is better known than Beagle 2 simply because it actually uh, returned science. Beagle 2 uh, is named after Darwin's HMS Beagle. And I really like that they called it Beagle 2 and not Beagle, right? It's like mm -hmm. it's a successor to HMS Beagle. It's just pleasing to me for some reason. So Beagle 2 was uh, one meter in diameter. It's uh, roughly circular. So it's one meter in diameter and 12 centimeters tall. That's that's just the lander, not uh, any of the other elements like the heat shields. But I mean, this, this, is, this is a small vehicle, right? And what's interesting is the top of the lander is sort of shaped like a, like a bowl, like a, a shallow bowl. Um, and I, I believe it's to accommodate everything that's packed inside of the lid because that'll be flat and they have um, instruments on the top of the, of the lander. So some of the payloads that went along um, were the uh, payload adjustable workbench or the PAW, which was a 109 centimeter ish long arm uh, or, or the, the PAW was on the end of the arm is, is a better way to put it. It had a pair of stereo cameras and I, we had sent um, stereo cameras to Mars previously, but I believe that this is notable as being the first uh, actual pair of cameras. Previous uh, stereo imagery was done with two sets of lenses focused on this on two halves of the same CCD. Um, there was a, a microscope. There was a Mossbauer spectrometer. And I had to go look this up. This is actually really fascinating. Um, so it's a form of nuclear resonance vibrational spectroscopy. So basically, you collect a sample and you fire gamma rays at it. And then you measure the, the power, the, the energy of the rays that are then re-emitted, um, not just reflected, um, like reflected off of a shiny surface, but actually re-emitted. And so most of the time when you're doing Mossbauer spectrometry, you 
um, have a gamma ray source and then your target. And they have to be the same material. If you are measuring uh, iron, then you need an iron uh, emitter. But in this case, they um, were measuring the resonance of the iron in the sample and they were using a cobalt 57 emitter. And so uh, I, I believe that has that the offset of the energy levels is intentional here to allow them to simplify how they actually um, scan across the the sample. And, and so I'll talk about that in a second. But the, the basic idea is that the sample and the emitter um, need to be in resonance. When the gamma rays hit the sample, if it was just a single atom, the sample would absorb the gamma ray and then re-emit a gamma ray. But the gamma ray that was emitted would be a different energy level than the gamma ray that it was hit with. Um, and that's because you lose uh, energy. It's, it's not a perfect reflection. You, you're losing energy mostly in the rebound as the, the gamma ray hits the sample atom and then the sample atom moves as it re-emits the new gamma ray. But it turns out, um, Mossbauer, this physicist found or realized that if your, um, target is in a crystal, um, and I don't think it needs to strictly be in a, in a crystal. If it's just in a, in a chunk of rock, then the rebound, uh, is minimized. There's a little bit of a rebound that is, soaked up by the uh, momentum of the sample as a whole, but it's not as big of a difference. And so what happens is you get a gamma ray um, coming off, but you also get some energy lost um, and emitted as, as photons. And what's really fascinating is that the number of photons that come off um, are obviously uh, quantized, right? It, you either have mm -hmm zero photons or one photon or two photons. It comes out in chunks. You can't get half of a photon. And so um, the number of photons that come off is variable. Sometimes you get more photons than others. And sometimes, yes, you indeed get no photons being emitted as as part of this uh, gamma ray re-emittance. And so in those instances, when you have no photons being emitted, the gamma ray um, come is emitted at nearly the exact same power, nearly the exact same energy level as the gamma ray that originally hit it. And, um, so like I said, you do lose some, uh, some energy that gets basically donated into the sample as a whole. Mm -hmm. But in those instances, um, if you measure, um, the gamma rays that come off, it tells you, um, something about, uh, the sample and, um, in particular, the sample and the emitter materials, when they're in resonance, you get a lot of uh, high energy or a lot of gamma ray energy coming, uh, get, getting re-emitted when they're in resonance. And so when they're not in resonance, you get more, uh, lower, uh, energy being re-emitted in gamma rays. And so <laughs> this is so cool. So if you had, um, an iron sample and an iron emitter uh, that you're using to to spit off these gamma rays, they would resonate a hundred percent of the time. But because you're going to be putting this iron target into a crystal of iron, or you know, a lump of rock, or in this case, into compounds with oxygen and other uh, chemicals on the surface of Mars, um, that iron 
uh, no longer is going to resonate as at the, at the same uh, gamma ray energy levels as an iron emitter. So instead, what they've done is they've used a different emitter, uh, cobalt 57. And, and this is all to my best knowledge. I, I could have some some details around here, but they've used a cobalt 57, which is going to be closer to the iron uh, resonance. But that's only good if you know exactly what your target is. And of course, the point here is that we don't know uh, what the target is. We're trying to find out information about what compounds this iron is participating in. And so what you can do is use Doppler shift to sort of scan through a range of different gamma ray energies. And um, you see spikes when you've reached resonance with the iron in the sample. And so to achieve that, uh, that Doppler shift, you actually put the sample in a linear accelerator and the speeds that I was seeing was something millimeters per second. Um, and so when the sample is moving at just the right speed towards the emitter or away from the emitter, hmm. um, the gamma rays that are being emitted are in resonance with, with your sample. And so you get plots, you know, spectroscopy, you, you expect to see plots that are like energy graphed by frequency or energy graphed by wavelength, something like that. Um, and in this case, you're actually seeing energy graphed by velocity. Mm -hmm. um, these are the velocities at which we see spikes uh, of uh, gamma ray energy being remitted. That's crazy and awesome. That's such an interesting idea. You you actually you change the velocity you know towards or away from the thing that you're observing, right? I mean, that's like you know pretty cool. Yeah, it, it's like if you had an object and you didn't you, you knew that it was mostly red, but it was slightly off red. And it only emitted in a, or it only reflected light in a very narrow wavelength. And, and so if you have a red LED, you can send, uh, red photons at the surface and it wouldn't reflect any, it would absorb all the light from your red LED because it's not quite the same color red. So instead you started flapping <laughs> yeah. this, uh, uh, this, you know, uh, paint sample, uh, back and forth in front of the LED. And when the red light from the LED was Doppler shifted just the right amount, it would get into that reflectance range and suddenly your, your paint sample would light up. It's very, very weird and cool. Um, so also on board the, um, the paw, which is at the end of the arm, uh, was an extra, an x-ray spectrometer, a, uh, a drill, um, that I've seen referred to variously as a grinder and a corer. Um, but the idea is you can go get a, a, a core sample of Mars to then toss into your two spectrometers. And then, uh, what's, I was fascinated by the WAM, the wide angle mirror. It's a mirror on the payload adjustable workbench and, uh, it's a hemispherical mirror and it can pop up away from the arm so that it's uh, situated in front of the stereo cameras. And the idea here is they didn't want to, uh, deploy the arm until they knew what the, uh, what the neighborhood looked like. Um, and so to take photos, you only have these two cameras on, on the paw. And so to take photos, they have the, the wide angle mirror, the wham pop up in front of the upward pointing cameras and allow you to take a panoramic photo. 
um, just one exposure uh, looking at a hemispherical mirror and you, you get this nice panoramic photo. And then once you have that, then you can deploy the arm and, and program movements that are going to be safe. And then oddly enough, I mean, it's space, everything serves dual purposes. And because we're going to have this mirror that can pop up, they also put a wind sensor on top of it. Um, I don't know if that was particularly so they could get early wind readings uh, before the uh, the arm had been deployed, or if it was just a nice place to stick it, maybe when they um, got it out of the way of the cameras, it it happened to be in a, a good orientation for doing wind sensing. On the lander was additional science uh, payloads. There's Pluto, the planetary undersurface tool, um, and this is a deployable mole. Um, it used uh, a compressed spring mechanism uh, as opposed to the rotary hammer mechanism that we see on Insight's mole. Um, it can actually, it was designed to be able to inch across the surface uh, as well as uh, burrow underneath the surface. And uh, Pluto would also collect samples. It could, it could burrow up to one and a half meters below the surface. And then uh, it's on a three meter power cable that can be winched back to the lander. So you can have this, you can have Pluto go dig, collect a sample, and then winch it back to the lander and then uh, analyze the sample that you've uh, retrieved. Um, the lander also had a gas analysis package. It had 12 ovens. You could load um, a sample into the oven and then it would heat up and it would bake out the CO2 um, bound up in that rock. And then you could measure the C12 to C13 ratio, which you know, it is mostly just we, we compare that back to Earth's, um, but it tells you something about when the carbon dioxide was created, I believe. They had uh, um, some atmospheric tools, and then I guess maybe most importantly, or maybe most um, applicable to this discussion, are the solar arrays. Um, they were tucked inside the lid. There were four round solar arrays and they would fold out the, the lid would fold out and then the four arrays would fold out from that. Um, and the lander body would kind of form the fifth petal with the open lid, kind of the inside facing the sky, forming the center of that flower. The inside of the lid also had, um, a fifth solar panel and the UHF antenna, which would allow um, Beagle to, to communicate up to Mars Express. Now, um, Mars Express obviously went into orbit. It detached, it deployed, uh, however you want to think about it. Uh, Beagle 2, which did a direct landing. Uh, it didn't go into orbit. It just, uh, hit the atmosphere and went straight down to the ground. Uh, it's a fairly uh, familiar landing sequence. They used parachutes and uh, airbags to bounce uh, on that final, uh, to absorb the final impact. Um, and it, it wouldn't have any live communications during reentry. Not only uh, is there the, the little bit of a blackout period, but uh, I don't think that our, our computer technology and our communication technology was sophisticated enough back then. On top of that, uh, there's the possibility that they didn't want to dedicate uh, power and mass allocations to an antenna um, when you could instead use all of that for your landing system. So uh, the idea was it was going to land... Um, unfold and then contact Mars Express. And, and this actually would happen over a fairly long period of time because it's not going to 
land and then immediately call up, it's going to have to unfold to expose that UHF antenna. The plan was for it to finish its landing sequence at 0245 and then call up at 1730, um, which is, is quite a delay to be able to safely um, do this uh, deploy sequence. And uh, even if you're not familiar with Beagle 2, I think you probably have a feeling of where this is going. There, the, there was no communication uh, ever. Um, we, we never heard back from it. And initially, we didn't know why. There were just a million different possibilities. Maybe the parachutes didn't deploy or the airbags didn't deploy and it just smacked into the surface and became a dark streak. You know, maybe it landed and the batteries had juggled loose and, you know, nothing ever happened and all, all these different things. But uh, 11 years later, in November, December of uh, 2014, MRO, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, imaged Isidus Planitia um, and spotted Beagle 2. Now, at this resolution, it was just a smudge, but you know we were able to confirm it did indeed land where we thought it was going to land. In fact, it landed just five kilometers from the landing, the center of the landing ellipse that we had assigned it. Now you you might see January 2015 cited as the uh, the discovery date, um, but that's just when the announcement of the discovery was made. You know, a month or two later uh, after they had processed their images. So the clue was 11 years and five kilometers. That's mm -hmm. where it comes from. I, I think a, a, maybe a more important uh, period of time is not the 11 years, but eight months. Uh, this would be the eight months that had elapsed between. Uh, Dr. Colin Pillinger passing away and the re, the, the discovery of the vehicle. Uh, Dr. Pillinger was the principal investigator for this mission. Um, and it's, let's, let's just say poignant, um, mm -hmm. that he never, he, he didn't quite make it. He never, uh, he never heard that his, uh, his mission did, uh, successfully land. So that, that was 2015. A year later, in April 2016, another announcement was made. Uh, MRO had taken additional images. Uh, they stacked them on top of each other and did image analysis that in 2016 uh, took days to complete. And, uh, and now you can do it in a couple minutes, I believe, um, partially because we have faster computers, but also because the algorithms have been uh, fine-tuned, I, I believe. But um, in, in 2016, they were able to get higher resolution, um, fake images as it were, and, uh, they were able to do reconstructions. So in the show notes, I'll have both the original photos that were taken as well as the higher resolution images. And what's really cool is that we not only were able to take higher resolution images, but we are able to do computer reconstructions because we know what the vehicle looks like. And we were able to postulate different configurations of the vehicle and figure out which one best matched the uh, reflections of, of sunlight that we see as the sun moves over uh, Beagle 2. Um, the sun reflects off of different portions of the, of the spacecraft and we're able to fine tune our understanding of, of what the vehicle 
what what configure what what gross configuration the vehicle um, is in. It looks like it's in the correct one. Like it doesn't like it landed intact, obviously. And according to these images, it unfolded. So kind of makes you yeah. wonder, you know. So it did unfold, and in these images, uh, specifically the computer reconstructions. Um, you can see five segments, uh, five circles. Um, the one with a lot of texture on it is the main lander. Um, the bright one right next to it is the lid. And then around that are five kind of pentagon-shaped uh, solar panels. So there are five overall shapes. One is the lander, one is the lid, and three are solar panels. Three solar panels, not four. Um, there, there is actually a, a fourth panel um, that we believe is not deployed. We believe it's sitting face down um, on the lid. And so that does two things. First off, it cuts our power generation uh, by two-fifths, right? Because two of the five solar panels are, are facing each other and, and completely in shadow. But it also obscures the UHF antenna. And so, you know, we, we, we don't know this for sure. Um, there's a possibility that all f five segments were exposed. In other words, all four solar panels did fold out correctly. Um, but maybe the fourth one, because the one that's missing is the fourth one that, that would deploy the very last one. Maybe, maybe it got ripped off and it's, you know, somewhere nearby and we just haven't spotted it. Uh, you know, all the, all these different possibilities, but it seems fairly certain that that fourth one didn't deploy. Um, and so the vehicle was intact and likely ready to go. Um, it just didn't have power or, it, uh, sorry, it didn't have the ability to communicate by radio. And, uh, Interestingly enough, uh, it would have been running on batteries at this point. And so there is every chance in the world that it actually did perform its, in, its planned initial surface operations. It was going to take a photo with the WAM, the wide angle mirror. Um, and the hope was that it would be able to send that photo up with its first contact call. There, there was a possibility that it wasn't going to be able to successfully take the photo. And so maybe it was just going to say, hi, I'm here. But how cool is that? There could be data sitting in its memory banks. It might have had enough power to complete everything but the call home. I'm not sure if they plan to do weather science as well. Um, they definitely were not going to deploy the arm until they could uh, do analysis on the ground. But yeah, um, Beagle 2 may have collected some science data, and if it did, it would have stored it in its memory banks, and it may still be there. The data may be sitting there right now. Now, granted, it's it's not particularly valuable data, because if you go and collect it, you will have already <laughs> had ample opportunity to collect better data. Um, but, you know, kind of this uh, historical data may be sitting there, um, you know, just just like one snapshot back in time. Like I always think with things like this, like maybe someday in the future there will be people on Mars and they will, you know, collect these things and put them in museums and like maybe we'll get mm -hmm. that data one day, you know, like mm -hmm. that itself would be a really cool historical piece of, I don't know, history. Yeah, there, there's a, a, a YouTube channel for you. Yeah. <laughs> Pulling data off of Beagle 2. And, and so another question is why didn't this panel deploy? And that we don't have an answer to and we won't until we go visit the vehicle. Um, there's a possibility that one of the airbags didn't uh, deflate properly and blocked the panel. Um, that, that seems unlikely given that all the other panels were able to deploy. I, I mean, just to me, it seems unlikely. I think it's more likely that the 
the vehicle suffered damage after after launch, you know, which includes a heck of a lot of time. Um, but between launch and landing, there was some damage that uh, kept the panel from deploying properly. Who knows? You know, maybe mm. it might have been an airbag and it just flapped around and and happened to obscure the not obscure block the movement of that last panel after the other three had deployed. It, it's a mystery, and and we're not going to know until we're there. But I mean, if it did obstruct it, it couldn't be like the airbag wouldn't be big enough then to be visible because that would have been in the reconstructed data, right? Or like the reconstructed image. I, I don't know. I, I think that the airbags would have been attached to the lander itself, uh, meaning that they probably are buried under sand at this point. Um, but keep in mind um, that computer reconstruction does not in any way reflect the state of the airbags. It's just kind of the configuration and a, and a nice publicity photo to help you imagine what this thing would look like if we could get a higher resolution. Yeah. Well, because, okay, because I thought that you said that there were algorithms that could kind of reconstruct from what data that there was. Um, but you're mm -hmm. saying that that's more of just like an interpretation, but not an actual reconstruction. Well, well, yeah, it's a reconstruction, but it only takes into account hard, shiny surfaces. So maybe I, maybe I should clarify. There are two layers of reconstruction that we're doing. One is the image stacking, which basically buys us additional pixels, right? Um, so instead of Beagle taking up one pixel, it takes up nine pixels. Well, actually it's more than nine, but you know, we can, we can get enough resolution to see a little bit of detail. And then there's an additional layer where we can look at Beagle over time and see what uh, the sunlight reflections and how they change over time. And, and that allows us to uh, get a, a better reading on where these panels, these reflective shiny surfaces actually are. Hopefully one day we'll know more. I mean, maybe some future mission in orbit around Mars at least could get better imagery. That is actually plausible. So perhaps I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, you know, our, our optics have limitations just based on physics, you know, unless you're going to do some pretty crazy stuff, you're kind of limited to a certain resolution. Um, but yeah, maybe I think it's almost certain that we'll get additional photography in the future and, you know, we'll always have better image image processing techniques. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, uh, orbital observation, but you know, I, I, I tend to think that it's inevitable that we will end up visiting Beagle two um, at some point, even if it's a robotic mission that visits it. I think, uh, I, I think humanity is going to remain fascinated by Mars to the point where where we'll we'll be able to do that. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, with that, uh, do you have a clue for next week? Well, so it's not next week; it's the week after, right? Oh, that's right. So uh, this date ranges for the fifth of January through the eleventh of January, and Dennis will be presenting it. But I went ahead and picked out. Uh, an event and a clue for him. We'll see how, how he feels about that. <laughs> I may wind up doing uh, doing the next one as well. But uh, next week in 1985, the clue is headed for a first close to home. All right, cool. So interesting clue, 1985 headed for a first close to home. All right. Well, if you think you know what that's in reference to, and uh, I guess I'll restate just again, this is for not next week, but the week after that. So it's uh, January 5th through the 11th. Um, if you think you know what that's about, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Yeah, good luck, everybody. Cool. All right. Well, upcoming spaceflight events is next, and we just got one spaceflight event. So pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. and what would that yeah, be? it's a Soyuz STA launch. Um, so on top of the Soyuz will be a frigate, and on top of that will be CSO2. This is the Camposanta Spaciale uh, op 
Optique, Optique, uh, French man. I'm not. I'm not even <laughs> pretend like I pronounced that correctly. Uh, so the CSO2 satellite is a high resolution uh, uh, optical uh, military spy satellite. It's uh, the, the a French military spy satellite. Um, it's actually going to be um, replacing Helios two. Um, Helios is uh, on its way out. Uh, CSO is on its way in. Um, this will be, uh, as you might guess, because I said the word French, it is going to be launching out of Kourou in French Guiana on Monday, December 28th at 1642 hours UTC. Okie doke. And that is your upcoming space flight event. All right. So let's deal with the show. Last one for the year, but we'll see you next year. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. And you can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check out Twitter or Reddit for links. We are Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that is all. We will see you next year on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody.